Welcome to Startup to Scale, a podcast by Food Bevy. I'm your host, Jordan Buckner. Join me as I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, seasoned industry experts, and everyone in between as we unlock the keys to growing from startup to scale. Hey everyone, Jordan here with the Startup to Scale podcast and very excited for today's guest. We have Fred Hart, who's the partner and creative director for Interact Brands. They do branding and design work for companies you might have heard of like Koya, Fat Snacks and Cauliflower and more. And we're going to be talking about everything branding and design in 2022. Fred, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Mom, if you're listening, I love you. (laughs) <laughs> Love that. So for a couple of things I want to hit on that we were kind of talking about uh, a little beforehand, popular conversation today is a lot of brands are thinking about how to plan for the potential upcoming recession that we're having. And I know it's a big thing on everyone's mind. So I want to jump into a conversation on what the role of design can play in helping brands navigate a challenge because a lot of times people think oh let me stop all spending on any kind of services or consultants during this time but um, you have a another perspective on that so really great question and uh, a really timely conversation obviously you know we really empathize with entrepreneurs we've been working with entrepreneurs for the last decade building challenger brands and the one thing that we've been particularly proud of with our work is its design effectiveness. Um, so much so that we were actually very fortunate to recently complete a redesign for Good Pops, a really amazing frozen novelty company out of Austin, Texas. Um, and that work that we did just won a design effectiveness award from Designalytics because uh, they proved through spins data and looking at sales before and after the redesign that there was a 40% increase in sales. Um, it's, that's, that's huge. It, phenomenal, right? And, and particularly when you're, as your brand continues to scale, if you're doing 20 million, 40 million, 50 million, et cetera, um, even a, you know, incremental single digit increase in sales can be monumental to the bottom line. So for us, it's just further proof that design does have a really strong place at the table in making sure that businesses are sort of future proof or future ready whether that's a recession, whether that's greater competition, whether that's moving from natural to conventional and facing a new host of competitors, design can be um, a really pivotal tool for entrepreneurs um, or brand managers to to utilize. So I love that term of design effectiveness, because a lot of times people think about design as like, it looks cool and maybe it helps yeah, yeah. find it like a little bit more, but um, that's one thing I love about you know, as an interact is you actually tie design and strategy to the business and business case and needs. A hundred percent. I mean, you won't hear us talking about winning design awards because for us, the way that we measure success is by our client success. And that's ultimately what we really want to do. I love that. So talk with me a little bit about what goes behind the scenes of doing a redesign that can raise a company's sales 40%, right? Because it's huge. What was the difference kind of before and after? And what did you and your team really help unlock? Yeah, for Good Pop specifically, it was really an art of nuance. You know, they had been really carving um, their path through the natural channel and, and making a lot of inroads and wins. And they were set to now grow in conventional, completely different uh, group of competitive brands, as well as a different 
consumer in those spaces. So first thing that we do is we really understand who are consumers today? What do they recognize about our brand? Because we really believe that people don't read, they recognize. We wanna create recognizable brand assets that could be color, that could be uh, image, that could be shape, you know, pattern, all sorts of things. In the case of Good Pop, it was, they had white packaging. The problem with white though, is it's oftentimes a very commoditized or generic color. Private label brands step on that all day, but white actually did work for us in conventional because all conventional brands were hyper-saturated. Think about the Popsicle brand, it's all yellow, outshine, all green. Um, the list goes on and on. And so white there was like a strong signal that we were a sort of a natural better for you brand. But in the natural channel, it was something that was table stakes for everyone else. So we get to know the business. We really spend a lot of time focused on consumers. We like to say people first, product second. It's really easy to just design a product. It's a lot harder to design for people. So we spend a lot of time with our strategy team, get to getting to understand the insights and what makes them tick. And then focusing on what matters to them the most, which for most consumers, it's flavor, it's appetite appeal. It's being able to see and find the brand easily, as well as understanding what are the benefits of the product in a really succinct way. So we clean up the communication hierarchy. We gave them all new product imagery um, that we meticulously art directed. Um, we gave them a brand color, which they'd never had before. And having some sort of ownable equity, if your overall brand palette is white, is critical here. So we gave them the color of turquoise. It's across every single SKU now. And all of these things help with shopability, findability, appetite appeal, and like sort of clarity of message. Um, and those things all coming together with, mind you, a phenomenal product is ultimately what helped them sort of like see that lift in sales. No, I think that's that's key. I love all those attributes: shopability, findability, appetite appeal. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I talk to hundreds of brands every month, and yeah. I see a lot of brands and founders who are trying to be really clever with their products. <laughs> and when I say clever, I mean like you know, there's there's a lot of brand leaning towards like functionality mm-hmm. and unique mm-hmm. ingredients, and in this whole trend towards like. Um, focus, clarity, calm, restorative kind of benefits of products, but gets into this interesting murky ground because they're like kind of making pseudo claims, but have no, you know, none of these ingredients have strong research behind it. They're all um, like directional research behind it. I'd love to learn like, or know your thoughts on like how customers are actually shopping in the market. Are they looking for things like like focus and calm, or are they shopping by ingredient? I know it varies some, but what's what are you seeing consumers doing? Yeah, it's a smart question. The category and context really matter here. So for instance, like supplements, um, these sort of functional claims make a lot of sense for them. You can look at a, a brand example of someone who maybe said, hey, that's that seems to be a hot trend. We should, we should think about function in our products with evil. Um, amazing frozen food company, you know, came from the epicenter of natural foods in Boulder where we're based after they're acquired, you know, and they have to continue to expand and, and hit sales goals. They eventually like launched a whole line of functional bowls. And I think what they miss there is that consumers are focused on flavor and food first. They're not, their hierarchy of decision-making is not, Hmm, do I want energy or clarity? from my bowl today? Or do I want sustain? It's like, well, you know, do I want the pasta 
or am I trying to go with something low carb that's maybe more high protein? And so I think sometimes we get too savvy with our marketing and, and want to put what we feel are trendy things layered on top of consumer truths that end up actually burying them. Um, so it really, it really depends, but there are other brands out there like Good Day Chocolate or Source where they've managed to find this beautiful sort of in-between of, you know, you think about your, your Flintstone vitamins and, and gummy vitamins and things of that nature. Well, chocolate is sort of almost one step removed where it's a form of permissible indulgence. But if you're telling me that I can also get, you know, like a little bit of caffeine with my chocolate or a little bit of vitamin C or vitamin D, then that's not so strange for me. So you really have to understand like the um, Maya principle, which is an acronym for most acceptable yet advanced, because you can't just like totally break all the rules and like do everything different from your competition. Most of the time you have to find incremental ways to pivot. I like that, the Maya principle, you know, because that's a mistake that I made with my brand T-Squares when I started, where I we tried to create too many new attributes in the space, right? They were functional energy bars for focus and, and clarity. We used ingredients like tea and ashwagandha in the product. But yep. the way that we communicated our difference, we had like five four or five new points of differentiation, right? They were like bite-sized squares. We sold them in a multi-pack. We had flavors like citrus green tea matcha and we used ingredients like tea. And at the yep. beginning I thought like, wow, what a moat. Like no one can copy all of these things. Yet it was also building a moat for consumers because no one had any idea what the hell our product was. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally true. And like, that was that was such a, a problem with us. So I like this idea. You know, I, I've kind of had this new, philosophy on it where it's simple where you know for new products coming out i always recommend founders start with an existing consumer behavior and product that they're currently eating and then add one maybe two points of differentiation to it and be really strong and and authentic in what those are um either it's ingredients or your social sustainability or or climate or like whatever that is but like own that part but if you make things too difficult then and too different then consumers won't have an idea of like where the ground you in couldn't agree more i think you're spot on with that sort of level of philosophy and that's something we try to guide our entrepreneurial climate uh, clients with as well nice i love that um one thing i want to get your, your thoughts on as well are uh, renaming for brands. So a lot of companies start out typically in this space, they'll choose a brand name that's either like their name or very closely tied to like the product, you know, it'll be like something, something coffee. Yep. And it really kind of limits them into what they're doing. So how do you work with brands as they're going through renaming challenges? Really great question. I think this is one of the like biggest conversation that actually isn't had in the, in the industry. So for instance, like some of our favorite brands and some of the most heralded brands have gone through the same process. So every, like Siete is on the tip of everyone's tongue these days, but it actually started off as must be nutty tortillas. Um, Koya, a client of ours in the plant-based beverage space, started it off as raw nature five. So there's a handful of really great examples, and we were fortunate to author a thought leadership piece on this exact subject and have it published by both Project Nosh and um, BevNet. But, but really, you know, names are the first opportunity for a consumer to get to know you, and they can do a lot of heavy lifting to help them understand either what your purpose is, your philosophy, or something about your product. 
But when, when brands get it wrong, they're either putting themselves into a pigeonhole, like must be nutty tortillas. How can you create anything else but tortillas at that right. point? <laughs> or the must be nutty, like, is that really the brand personality that you want to, you know, uh, have resonate outwards to consumers? Um, when, when actually your missions are all about like family and heritage, which the rename of Siete does, um, it can also get you in trouble. We worked with a, an amazing brand out of Boston, two female founders, Katie and Gwen, that started a company called Minus the Moo. They're making lactose-free ice cream and really like reinventing what lactate is today for a new generation. Their problem though, was people heard Minus the Moo and they thought, oh, must be plant-based. There's no milk in it. When in reality there is, there's just no lactose uh, enzyme or, and so what we did in working with them and helping them figure out their positioning was change their name to Beckon. And Beckon is all about like welcoming people back to the way ice cream should be inclusive for everyone, celebratory so that people with um, lactose intolerance or can handle lactose can both enjoy the same product. So naming is, is really powerful and it's, it shouldn't be shameful for anyone to get it wrong. Again, it happens all the time, but changing a name, I think is more of an opportunity rather than it is like sort of a stain on your reputation. It means you learn and you figured out how to better tell your story. We should celebrate those things. What are the watchouts founders need to be aware of when going through a renaming process? Watchouts, really good question. I mean, so in short, there are usually seven reasons why you will rename. One, there's legality issues. There's something in your name that could get you sued. Two, it's too product specific. You're, you're in a box. You can't create anything else because the product type is in the name. Um, for instance, like Nugs, the company, they recently rebranded to Simulate. Now they can make hot dogs and all sorts of other plant-based alternatives, whereas Nugs were clearly just about nuggets. You have names that are misleading, like Minus the Moo. Sometimes you have generic or forgettable names. And that's one thing that is a big watch out in renaming is if you, the more descriptive you get, one, the harder it is to register a unique name. And two, the more likely you are to become generic. We worked with a company called Bone Broth Co. Um, that rebranded that we rebranded to Kettle and Fire, um, and they're huge in the the Bone Broth category now. But Kettle and Fire is so much more distinctive and unmistakable, and feels like a brand um, that you want to buy into. Where and it's evocative, right? It like puts yeah, a, yeah. an emotional image in your mind. Yep, couldn't agree more. Um, there are some names that don't tell the right story. Um, there are others that might be offensive or inappropriate. I mean, in the news recently, Aunt Jemima got rebranded to Pearl Mill and Co. Um, and there are some real societal issues with those sorts of names. Those are less common these days, fortunately. And I don't think many entrepreneurs make that mistake, but what we see the most is just like descriptive names. For instance, keto is blown up. And now you have brands like Perfect Keto, Keto Pint, Keto Fit, Naked Keto, Keto, K-I-I-T-O. Um, and keto will come and go just like all of the trends and they'll be left holding this name that doesn't position them well for the future. And so we always try to help consumers think through, or uh, entrepreneurs think through how to future-proof their brands with consumers. So you have the spelling, you have the um, verbal element and how easy it is to repeat. And then you have just the underlying meaning. And those are three criteria that you need to make sure are all being hit on properly when you rename. And then I know one of the biggest concerns are um, like, how do I educate my customers about the name change? Because like you can send out an email to your customer list, but what about in store? Does that matter? Do you 
see brands see like a customer drop off or what happens there? What tends to be a little bit more painful actually is um, having to get all new UPCs. That's difficult. Um, that's a headache. Uh, hurts like being able to track data um, and all of those things with retailers. With consumers though, it's actually not that difficult. So most brands have so many touch points with their community, whether it's their social outlets, be that Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, they have their website, they have the newsletter, and then they have their packaging. And if some brands are hesitant about that, what we suggest is, well, you can apply those things, you know, you can, you can, you can do the rename on pack and then have an element, you know, formerly X, Y, and Z. The other thing too, though, is sometimes the entire boat doesn't need to be rocked. You can swap out the name, but still have everything else look the same. And as long as there's some sort of recognizable tie to the old brand, if it's relevant enough, um, then those things usually work out in the long run. Um, it's only if you, you know, really have maybe a very significantly sized business and you have to go through the same change, does it become a little bit more finicky? Um, but there's so many tools at people's disposal these days and, and PR is, uh, abundant that usually, um, it's just a short-term inconvenience for a long-term benefit. I love that. I want to switch gears a little bit, um, towards the end here. So, there's been a huge shift in design kind of style and appeal that's been out there. And I know yeah. uh, you and your team are calling it adorkable, but it's this kind of reference to the nineties as like a happy a time when like all of our childhood memories are positive and everything's great. You see like windows 95 flashing in <laughs> graphics and like pixelated logos. <laughs> um, talk about like that design style and um, how you're using it or where you think that kind of comes from. Yeah. So anytime we talk about trends, we also want to think about where have we been previously, because there's always a pendulum swing that's happening in uh, the mid to late 1910 or 2010s, 2010s, excuse me. So I think about 2018, there was a term that was thrown around called blanding It's essentially the sort of millennial DTC component, soft pinks, sans serif typography, all these brands having like a similar illustration style that pairs with things. Um, and it was sort of a playbook that got used in the DTC world that made everything just feel comfortable and clean and modern. We're now seeing the pendulum swing the other way um, to what you just talked about, adorkables, which was covered by Bloomberg, which is really great. And adorkables is all about high saturation, maximalism, um, full personality, irreverence, cheekiness, um, tone of voice, like being much more jovial or comedic or all of these other things. And obviously we're stereotyping here, but I think that's partially a result of one uh, Gen Z and their desire to carve out their own unique aesthetic territory, you know, as they sort of revolt from the blending world of, of the millennial generation Two, I think we're in a time where people are looking to brands for engagement, entertainment, um, a moment of relief and a little bit of happiness. And so there are a lot of brands that are sort of like taking up that space and mantle really depends on your category. It's happening a lot in health and beauty and that feels super appropriate. It's definitely happening a lot in the CPG industry, particularly with brands that are uh, digitally native. What remains to be seen though, is does that work for a larger audience than just the super niche uh, group? 
that finds them online and is your day one loyalist. Because once you have to start competing with other brands, all of a sudden you can look like a clown amongst a group of tuxedos when there are other like companies at shelf in, in a competitive environment that aren't showing up that way. I think it's really great in terms of getting us to all really pause and think. The thing that we try to avoid as an agency is just haphazardly applying that because it's the thing to do right now. If it doesn't make sense for our audience, ultimately, we won't touch it. And if it does make sense for our audience, we got to find a unique way to put a spin on it. So you're not just grouped in and feel forgettable with, oh yeah, was it this brand or that brand that looked like that? I will like embarrassingly say that like I came across a website that felt like navigating a Windows 95 computer. And there's even like a loading screen. There's a uh, I think it's a design agency that has one as well, but like yes, there's like yes, flying yes. toasters on there, right? It's yep. just like, I, that was the first, one of the first times I was like, I've really missed something here. <laughs> like I started I mean, feeling old. I'm like, not even that, I grew up in the nineties. I'm like, it feels like they're referencing this stuff. Like I get it, but then I don't get it. And, and I was like, you know what? Let me kind of take a step back and really understand where this is coming from. Yeah, it's, there's a high degree of novelty, which creates short-term engagement. What remains to be seen is how timeless can it be? We think based on our, creative fundamentals that um, there are ways to sort of lean into it, but create timeless design rather than just go full bore and suddenly look dated in five years from now. Yeah. And they'll look 20 years dated, 30 years dated and five at the same time. So yeah, it'll be yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fred, thanks so much for being on the show today. This is a great conversation. Jordan, my pleasure. Thanks so much.